Hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. A few housekeeping points before we begin. Number one, every episode is accompanied by episode notes that highlight everything I've referenced. So people I've mentioned, verses from the Quran, Hadith, etc. They're all in the episode notes, which you can find at makingsenseofislam.com. Now, most of the episodes are short form, so the notes are few. But once we get into the longer form episodes, which I plan on uploading soon, these notes are going to be a very uh, useful resource and an aid. So be sure to check that out. Number two, I would really, really appreciate it if you could rate the podcast on whatever platform you use and leave a comment, hopefully positive. And number three, every Friday, I send out a short email that shares what I'm working on or reading in my four focus areas. If you'd like to receive these, please sign up by going to coexistresearch.com forward slash Friday. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. Inshallah, today uh, in the third, our third gathering, we're going to talk about the establishment of the Medina state. And this represents for us uh, in our conversation the third uh, prophetic model of coexistence. And this topic is timely because essentially we're going to talk about the constitution of Medina and how the Prophet, peace be upon him, sought to establish a state. And then that will be one sort of discussion. And then the second discussion, I'd like to digress a little bit and talk about the caliphate uh, as an institution, since it's something that people have been talking about a lot uh, in media, in the public square, etc., and to maybe dissect a little bit what that's about and, and draw the comparisons. So in the last two models, we talked about the Prophet, peace be upon him, living in Mecca before he was commissioned as a prophet, after he was commissioned as a prophet, and the struggles that ensued and the patience that was required. And then we also talked about uh, this little side issue of when the Muslims, some of the Muslims went to Abyssinia to live in uh, Ethiopia, but now we're going to talk about a completely different phase. This is when the Prophet ﷺ had exhausted all uh, efforts to live peacefully with the Quraysh. He had exhausted all efforts to live uh, freely, practicing his faith freely um, with the, the people of Quraysh to coexist with them. But they are the ones that essentially rejected that. And it was time to leave. So the Prophet, peace be upon him, he had sent his companions step by step, you know, group by group to Yathrib, uh, which is a city that is roughly north uh, of Mecca. Uh, and when he ensured that all of his followers had gone, he set out on the journey, him and Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. When the Prophet ﷺ arrived in Medina, uh, he was welcomed as the leader of Medina. So the situation was quite different. In Mecca, he was from Mecca. He was born there, raised there. Uh, he came from a very noble family of Mecca, so on and so forth. But when he got to Medina, he was no longer the underdog. He was no longer uh, you know, this small group, fledging group. He was now welcomed as the political leader and the spiritual leader of Medina. So the first thing, the very first thing that the Prophet, peace be upon him, did is he built a mosque. And the mosque, uh, which stands till today, but obviously much bigger than its original uh, geography, represented for the Prophet, the center of his mission. 
that this mosque was a gathering place for all people, not just the Muslims. And as maybe next time when we talk about the final stage in Medina, a lot of the groups that would come from the different tribes of Arabia, even the different religious groups would take, take up in the mosque and even worship in the mosque. So, and we'll get to that next time, but the mosque is the center for the Prophet ﷺ of the spiritual mission, of the religion, of the political mission of Medina, and it is the gathering place of all of the people. It is the ga- and it's where his house is, you know, by the mosque, which now it's subsumed in the mosque where his, 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 he's buried, وسلم, where his family lived, his children grew up, where he met dignitaries, where he advised people, where he passed judgments, uh, and where he taught people, and obviously where he prayed. So the mosque, from that time really till our time, is, is a very dynamic space. It's not just a place where you pray once a week and then you sort of forget about it, but it's a place where a lot of different things happen. And the mosque brought the different Muslim tribes together. Because when the Prophet, peace be upon him, came to Medina, the people that left, the, immigra- the people that immigrated from Mecca, they left everything behind. They left all their wealth behind. They left their family ties behind. They left their status behind. It's not like now where you know, you, your portfolio is, and your 401k is digital. It doesn't matter where you are. Their you know, currency was hard and, and livestock and, and gold coins and things like that. They had to leave all of those things behind, fleeing for their... Uh, being persecuted because of their religious beliefs, and they fled to Medina so they could be worship uh, freely. So they came impoverished. And then in Medina, the tribes that had accepted Islam, the Aus and the Khazraj, they were two different tribes. And at the same time, the largest subgroup in Medina were the Jewish tribes. So other than the Muslims that were the majority, the second uh, or the largest minority were the Jewish tribes. And then there were also people that still practiced polytheism, the Arab paganism and polytheism. So the Prophet, peace be upon him, he came to Medina, it was already plural. Sometimes we think about Medina as being like one homogeneous sort of community. But even amongst the Muslims themselves, they were diverse. So the Prophet built the mosque to gather the people together. And then he noticed that there was going to be trouble between his own constituents, the Muslims themselves, because of the disparity between the, the Meccans that came and the Medinese Muslims. The Meccans, you know, they just sort of shacked up in the mosque and they're just waiting for something to happen because they have nothing. They have no homes, they have no wealth, they have no mean of, of sustenance, no jobs. And they're just sort of, well, we're here because that's what we, we wanted to do, but what do we do now? So the Prophet wasallam. In his wisdom, he started this program of brotherhood. And in this sense, Medina is really the original Philadelphia. Because Philadelphia, philos is love, and Delphi is brotherly, or brotherhood. So Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. And this is essentially what the Prophet converted Medina to. It became a city of brotherly love. So he paired one Meccan to one Medinese Muslim. And he said, this is your brother. And you, you help this brother out. And this pairing across that uh, divide of, of wealth and status, and you know, uh, these are foreigners essentially, lasted till the end of those people's lives. So even way after the, 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 the death of the Prophet, those people that were paired 
they still had this sort of special bond that the Prophet would pair them or one Medanese would say, okay, I'll take so-and-so, I'll take Bilal, I'll take so-and-so under my wing. And they would even give from their wealth. So they say, see all of my wealth, take half of it. Now imagine being asked or imagine uh, somebody comes and you know, you're established, you live in where you live and you give that person half of your wealth, half of what's in your bank account. You have two cars, you give them a car. You have uh, you know, $10,000 in the bank, you give them five. Whatever resources you have, you split it. It's a very tall order, but this, there was something greater that was happening, which was this new community, this new community was being forged. And the Prophet's first task was to mend the, the, the ways between his own community, because now the Muslims were no longer just Meccan, they were Meccan and poor and Medina uh, tribes and wealthy and he brought them together so there was this first this coexistence of the Muslims themselves and that there was no status symbol that I'm rich and you're poor or you're rich and I'm poor but we're both in it together and because of the circumstances now I have nothing and you have a lot so you help somebody out and in this way he brought them together he empowered and enfranchised the Meccans who had left everything and had followed him. And at the same time, he had given this special status to the Madinese uh, tribes, the Aus and the Khazraj, as the people that welcomed in the Muslims. But as I said, the Prophet, peace be upon him, when he came to Medina, there weren't just Muslims. There were several Jewish tribes. And there was a small minority of uh, polytheists, pagans, that continued the belief in the uh, Arab uh, paganism. And then later, there were two more subgroups. There were the hypocrites, which we'll talk about a little bit at the end or maybe next time. And then there was a, a, even a smaller minority of Christian tribes. So the Prophet ﷺ wearing you know, the hat of, or the, in this case the turban of the head of state, had another task. Up until this point, he was a religious, spiritual advisor, leader, commissioned to deliver the message. Now he's the head of state. So his next order was to establish the state and establish the bond by which all of these groups can coexist. And in this regard, we have this fantastic document from our history called the Constitution of Medina, Wathiqatul Medina which is a series of uh, points that the Prophet ﷺ wrote down or commissioned to, to be written down that established this new body politic. And essentially, what the Prophet ﷺ did is he said, he first defined the geography of Medina. So now there are boundaries. There's, there's a border around the city. And anybody that lives within this border, these are the points that will now become incumbent upon them. And that nobody can violate the rights of anybody else. No tribe can violate the rights of another tribe. No Muslim can violate the, tribe, the, the rights of a Jewish tribe and vice versa. Nobody can collude with the enemy. So now... We have to remember that even though the Prophet ﷺ landed in Medina safely with all of the, his followers, there were still, the people of Quraysh were still out for blood. So there was still an enemy of the state. 
So no longer, now it's become, it becomes incumbent now that the Prophet is, is accepted as a political leader and the state is established, a nation is established, that nobody can collude with the enemy of that state. And likewise, were there to be an attack against the homeland and an army would need to be raised, all of the tribes have to participate together, the Muslim tribes, the Jewish tribes, the pagan tribes, to raise the army to defend the homeland. Because there's no standing army at this time in history. The armies are, you know, everyone has their own like gear. And when it's time to fight, you bring the gear and you go and fight. Now we have a standing army. You don't have to own a submarine and a tank and, you know, and a, a this and a that in case somebody's going to invade. We have an army that does that. But in the pre-modern time, every, the, the people of a town or a village or an area or a region, they raise the army together. So it was normal that, that all the tribes be asked that. Why? Because now they are all one nation. And then the Prophet ﷺ, he says something interesting. He said, the Muslims, they have their religion. And the Jews, they have their religion. But together, we are one nation amongst people. Ummatun bin The text of the constitution. Meaning that the Prophet ﷺ preserved the right for people to practice their own religion. And it observed the freedom that these people had their own religious identity. And did not force them or coerce them to convert. He said, the Jews have their religion and the Muslims have their religion and together, all of us, we are one nation amongst the people. And then the Prophet ﷺ also established that the Qur'an and that his teachings would be the source of legislation. That if there was a problem, meaning if there was a problem publicly, that the source or the reference for that would be the Book of God, and the, because he was alive with them and himself, sallallahu alaihi as a legislator, meaning that the rule of law was established. Why was the the rule of law established accordingly? Well, obviously because the Muslims were a majority, a vast majority, and secondly because the Quran was clear. It was written and it was compiled, and the Prophet sallallahu alaihi was there to uh, comment and to uh, to advise and to explain and so on and so forth. Whereas maybe the religion of the Jews at that time was not accessible to everyone. No one, not everybody knew what was in the Torah or, or in the, uh, the Talmud or the commentaries. It wasn't accessible to everyone. But the Qur'an and the Prophet ﷺ being alive was accessible. So he himself and the revelation became the source of legislation only in debates amongst them. But in, or, or in conflicts uh, uh, that were public. But in private issues, the Jews, again, the Prophet ﷺ saying, the Jews have their own religion, meaning that they have the right to legislate themselves according to their own beliefs of issues that, that regard themselves, what we call today personal status laws. And there was complete freedom of movement. Whoever lived in Medina was safe. Whoever traveled was safe, meaning that these rules, these points, these articles of this constitution applied to them as long as they were a group together, as long as they were citizens, so to speak, of this nation. This was the constitution of Medina. These are the, it's very short, you know, maybe one page document, but this was essentially, these are the, the, the high level, the executive summary of the, of the constitution. Now, let us maybe dig a little bit deeper into this constitution to understand uh, the significance of this text because 
Unfortunately, this is something that, you know, maybe a lot of times when I talk about this, people are like, this is the first time we've ever heard of this. And when you look at the source of Western law, you know, we hail the Magna Carta as like the source of our, you know, Western tradition. You know, the Magna Carta is, is a very weak document. And it even is unjust towards Jews specifically. You know that if a Jew owes a Lord something, but then the Lord dies or the Jew dies, the debt is transferred, things like that. It's a very um, questionable document. But yet we have you know, people and philanthropists that will pay you know, tens of millions of dollars to purchase the original copy of the Magna Carta and you know, donate it to the Library of Congress as a source of, of pride that this is the source, the backbone of Western uh, legal tradition. You know, we have our own, and we share in that, and there are many compatible elements in that. We also have something that's even more significant because we're talking about the 7th century, or maybe the 8th century, a document that hails that, that, that's that old, you know, 100 years old, that talks about freedom of religion, freedom of movement, uh, defining the homeland. And this is why when, when the modern nation state comes in later, you know, in the 18th century, in the 19th century, the ulama were able to deduce and understand the modern concept of citizenship because we have something like that in our history, that we are now part of this union. And what the Prophet ﷺ essentially is doing in this document is he's saying, look, there's something else that binds us, not just our religious belief. There's something, I don't want to use the word greater, but there's something more common that binds all of these tribes together. We are all part of the Medina state. And this is a really a revolutionary idea that he's not saying it's tribal. And this is something that he emphasized وسلم, throughout his life and in the final you know, uh, sermon of the Hajj, the famous sermon that we always talk about. You know, he emphasized that there is no difference between an Arab and a non-Arab, between a black and a white. So on and you know on all of these distinctions, except in God consciousness, except in sort of what's on the inside. Illa bitaqwa, he says, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. This is a revolutionary idea in ancient Arabia. The fact that we are all going to be a part of this geography, this geographical area, and this citizenship or this social bond will bind us, not the religious belief. And that it's plural. So the Medina state was established in the text of the Medina state. It's established that it's not all Muslims, but that Jews live amongst them. He mentions the Jews again because they were the largest minority. And then the reference of the Sharia, what we call now the Sharia as the source of legislation is also very important. And it will be very significant as when we start to talk about the caliphate and what does the sharia mean as the source of legislation for a nation. The idea being, other than the fact that I mentioned that they were majority, is that for law to be, uh, to have the rule of law, the law needs to be known. You have to know what the law is. You can't go to court and not know what's going to happen to you. You can't step out of your house and go to the marketplace and, and trade and do this, if you don't know what the rules are. You have to know what they are. Uh, and that's one of the things about the modern state or the democratic state or the idea of the rule of law is the law has to be known. 
And this is one of the advantages that Islam has, is that the law is known. It's accessible. You know, people might say, well, we don't know, and it's very complicated. Do you guys know what's in the IRS tax code or how many pages it is? Nobody knows that. Even the people that work in the IRS, IRS themselves, they don't know it. So when we say that it's known, but you can go to the website and you can download the form and the, the, you know, the first like 40 pages that are the instructions for the one-page form and things like that, you can access it and you can read it and you can talk to somebody about it, theoretically. You have an accountant, so on and so forth. The Sharia is the same way. So for the Sharia to be a source of legislation, it has to be accessible, it has to be known, it has to be documented, it has to be cataloged, there have to be courts, there have to be people that can administer the law, it can't be like this, we don't know what's going to happen type of situation. And there are some countries that you go to and you just don't know what's going to happen. And they might say that they're Muslim countries, maybe they're not Muslim countries. And there are other countries, whether they're Muslim or not, you know what's going to, you can access the law. It's there, there are signs and so on and so forth. These things might seem uh, trivial and we take them for granted. But it's very important if we're talking about politics in a general way, if we're talking about a nation state, citizenship, that the rule of law means that the law is known, is accessible, and people are equal in front of the law. And there, and there are examples from this period of Medina when the Prophet ﷺ made the litigants that come to him, whether they're Muslims or Jews or mixed, and he treated them equally in front of the law. So he's not something that he just said, or it's not something that we just say that there really is no difference between people except their state of heart, but this is something that the Prophet himself acted upon, that he treated people equally in front of the law. And his famous hadith, he said, even if Fatima, the daughter of the Prophet who for Muslims, you know, both Sunni and Shia, is Zahra, السلام, you know, the, the source of all of the, the descendants of the Prophet, peace be upon him, if she were to steal, I would exact out the punishment for theft. So everyone in front of the law has to be equal, or else it doesn't work, or else the system doesn't work. We also understand from the constitution of Medina the sanctity of life. The Prophet ﷺ, he named all of the tribes. I didn't want to translate or read it because it, it, like the whole first paragraph was all of the names of the tribes. The, the Muslim tribes, the Medinese tribes, the, Quray, uh, the Meccans, the Jewish tribes, so on and so forth. But he said all of them are safe. Meaning that life is something that's very expensive. Allah Ta'ala says in Surah Al-Isra, وَلَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا بَنِي آدَمْ Indeed, we have ennobled the human being. He didn't say, لَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا الْمُسْلِمِينَ or لَقَدْ كَرَّمْنَا الْمُؤْمِنِينَ That we have ennobled or honored the believer or the Muslim, but we have honored the children of Adam. Meaning that every human soul is, is sacred. Why is the human soul sacred in our sort of paradigm? Because it has the, 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 the mark of the divine on it. But this is God's copyright. right? Copyright Allah on the soul. Now what the soul does in life is a, is a separate matter. What happens after life is, a, is an altogether other matter that really and essentially doesn't concern us because we don't know what will happen, what Allah will do with creation. But every single soul has that mark of the divine on it. Has that mark in the spiritual sense of that day before the day, yawm la yawm, as the ulama say, in which all souls witnessed the oneness of God. Alastu bi rabbikum, 
Allah Ta'ala says in the Quran, am I not your Lord of that day? All souls witness that. So from the Muslim, the believer, that means every human being is sacred. Every human being is holy. Every soul is a holy created thing. And the Prophet ﷺ took this as a spiritual religious idea and enacted it in the constitution of the state. And this is a really profound point. That whoever lives in this state, whoever lives in this nation is protected, is safe. No harm can come to them. And if anyone were to harm anyone else, they would have to pay the price. Because there is the rule of law, that people are treated equally in front of the law. This is a very, I think very, in my opinion, one of the most profound things of it. I mean, think about ancient Arabia. One would assume that the Prophet ﷺ established this as a Muslim state, as a Muslims only, that if anyone violated anyone, it doesn't matter, only the Muslims matter. But even at that time, when he had the ability to do that, as now being accepted as the commander-in-chief, being accepted as the chief executive of the nation, he could have done that, but he didn't. And he coexisted in writing with these people. Freedom of religious belief. The Jews have their religion, and the Muslims have their religion. I mean, that's very profound, which goes counter to the narrative that people think of the Prophet ﷺ as like a warmonger, or somebody who you know, brought Islam by the sword, who killed people in the name of God. But when he had the opportunity to do that in Medina, what we're talking about, he didn't. And when he had the opportunity to do that when he conquered Mecca, the people that persecuted them and killed them and tortured them, he said, what do you think I will do with you? And they said, you're a good person from a good family. He said, go, you are all free. I mean, that's very, very profound to be in that position of worldly power, but to not exact that worldly power and to show mercy and compassion against one's enemy, sworn public enemy. That's tremendous. That's like in our mind, that's like saying the people in Nuremberg, okay, you're free, we'll forgive you, we'll let you take a pass. Something that we would find unfathomable to say to the people that, you know, put innocents in gas chambers and killed children and split families, okay, you're free. Because even though statistically the numbers weren't as much with the, the Prophet ﷺ and the Meccans, the same things happened. They were tortured, they were persecuted, they were kicked out of their homes, the families were split asunder because of their religious beliefs. And when he conquered Mecca, he said, you're free. You go in peace. That's, that's big. And, and it emphasizes, this is an action point of the verse, لا إكراه في الدين. There is no compulsion in religion. So again, we see in this early state, particularly in this document, we see how the Prophet ﷺ took what is a religious, spiritual notion. There's no compulsion in religion. You know, religion has to come from the inside. Faith has to come from the inside. But how he acts upon it in the constitution, in, in his governance of, of the people. We also understand from the constitution of Medina that there's this idea of civic action. When he says that if somebody attacks, we raise the army together, 
that we deduce from that, that that means that there are common things that we have to do as citizens in our social contract together. That there are things that all people, because in the Constitution he's affirming that each group has the right to, to do their own thing, but when it comes to the, to the us, the greater us, then everyone has to participate. If things affect the homeland, then everyone has to participate. Whether it's a threat to deter the threat, whether it's a service that needs to be, whether it's medical services, social services, educational services, all of these things are things that we have to do. Regardless of the creed, regardless of how people uh, believe or their backgrounds. And then lastly, the idea of freedom of movement, which is one of the markers today that we use in social theory for social cohesion. What is the amount of movement that people have? Access to services and the freedom to just go about their business. You never think I, you can open the door and just go anywhere. You can choose to go to work or you could choose not to go to work. You know, could choose to go to school or not go to school. No one's forcing us to do those things. Maybe our you know, parents push the kids and you know, spouse forces the other spouse or something like that. But that's our, our own human connections. But there's no authority forcing us to go here or to go there. You can buy a train ticket, a bus ticket, a plane ticket, and go to the bus, the train, and the plane, and go where you want to go. Freedom of movement. That is part of being a citizen. That's part of your rights as a, as a citizen. And the Prophet ﷺ exacted that right and documented that right for the people in, in, in this pact inside Medina and outside Medina. Meaning that these rights extended for the citizens of the Medina state outside Medina as well. That they had the right to leave and to come back. فَهُوَ amin. Always the, ver- the words in the, in the text, he is, so this person is safe. فَهُوَ amin. Meaning he is safe, amin in everything. Their families are safe. Their wealth is safe. Their, their religious beliefs are safe. Their relations are safe. Their homes are safe. It's not like some Jewish merchant leaves and then he's like, okay, go take his stuff. No, they're safe. Or a polytheist, a mushrik, an idol worshiper, which the Prophet came to eradicate. He didn't say, you know, go do this, go do that to them. So they're safe. This is really mind-boggling. That this is a, these are sahih uh, texts, the, the Medina uh, constitution is sound, it's authoritative, and we have this, you know, but it's sort of like we park it, because we're stuck, or, or not us, but a lot of people are stuck on Islam in, in its last form, Islam as a, as a conqueror, Islam as, as a usurper, and we forget all of the things that the Prophet said did, and this is for me one of the most uh, significant, brilliant you know, genius things that he did, sallallahu alaihi wasallam, that he took what could, what would have been a, a ticking time bomb. You know, this leaving one difficulty, finding another. Now he's not dealing with the, the Quraysh or the polytheists, but now he's dealing with another religious community altogether. This Jewish, several Jewish tribes, who had enclosed themselves, they sort of had their own walled-off neighborhoods and 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 villages in the state. But he coexisted with them. And as we, as we read into the, the uh, life of the Prophet ﷺ, we see 
how even in the very end of his life, there were still Jews, Christians, and polytheists that lived in the Medina state. So if someone said, okay, I'm making this up, this was in the beginning, he had to do this because you know, he had to gain power, then you would see, okay, then at the end of his life, like he eradicated everyone. But that didn't happen. He made peace with these tribes. You know, we'll read in the next time, we'll read how the group of, of Yemen, the Christians of Yemen came and he let them stay in the mosque and pray in the mosque. I mean, imagine in our mosques today, if we allowed a Christian group or a Jewish group to come to the mosque and pray. You can imagine what would happen at the next board meeting. There'd be a change of the board or something like that. But this is the Prophet ﷺ himself did this. Who's our example, who's our source of uh, legislation and understanding. What do we, how do we take what God says in the Qur'an and apply it? We follow him. So this is what he did, ﷺ. So the constitution of Medina is something that we should really spend more time talking about and understanding. Because this now pivots from Islam being a small, you know, weak uh, movement, social religious movement, to now being a state in all senses of the word. Uh, borders, citizenship, army, conflict with the other, enemies of the state, people trying to attack. You know, his whole life people were trying to kill him. And this carries through, but despite all of that, he coexisted with everyone under his protection. He lived with everyone. And the greatest example before I'll pause of this is the group that emerges now, the hypocrites of Medina. So the hypocrites of Medina are a group of people that claim they followed the Prophet claim that they're Muslim, but quietly... They were subversive. They colluded with the enemy. They sold state secrets to the enemies. And in the Qur'an and in the Sunnah literature, they're called hypocrites. You know, today we might call them you know, spies or, or something like that. One of the interesting things about that is that the Prophet knew who they were by name through revelation. And the companions, but he didn't tell anybody. And the companions said, well, if you know who they are, just, just give us their names. We'll take care of it. He said, I can't do that. They said, why? He said, if I did that, then people in the future would say that Muhammad killed his, his friends. That's a deep statement. What does that mean? These people were not, these people were, were uh, sowing insurrection. You know, these were like people that were trying to overthrow, literally selling state secrets, giving plans of his movement so he could be assassinated, uh, giving uh, exit plans of the city so enemies could come and invade the city. I mean, really serious stuff. No one would, any country, nation, town would not allow that. But outwardly they claimed that they believed. And outwardly they claimed that he was his companions. So he would not allow that people in the future would say something bad about him. That's serious. That means he cared about PR. He cared about what people would say, what people would think in his actions. Now, you know, somebody curses the Prophet ﷺ, they draw some silly cartoon, and then all hell breaks loose. Well, what do you think the world will say if you do that? They will only say that this is why we need to draw these cartoons, because these people are lunatics. But the Prophet ﷺ was very, very smart. I mean, really, really smart. He was street smart, he had intuition, in addition to revelation, but he was a smart, smart guy. 
And he understood what would happen if he did that. So he said, let's leave them. We'll coexist with them. We'll find a way to deal with it and neutralize the problem. And he did. And he conquered Mecca. Mecca fell to him. And he coexisted with them. And, you know, and as we say, the rest is history.